all the time. And for those of you who are really, really confused, uh, it's not that I uh, like making fun of British accents. We actually had the souls here earlier, and I had to apologize to them. They're a British family in our church. I don't know if anybody else here is British, but... um, My name's Wes. I'm the missions pastor here at Grace Bible Church, but uh, my wife and I are currently, since September, uh, living in Oxford, England, uh, where I've been afforded the opportunity to study there for a year. And so uh, it is wonderful. We are enjoying our time there. Uh, The the coursework that I'm in is wonderful. The people that we're meeting are really interesting from all over the world. Uh, And it really does feel like a joy and a privilege uh, we are enjoying the church that we're a part of there on Sundays, uh, and so it's, it's been great. That's the report on the last several months, uh, but at the same time, it is so, so wonderful uh, to be home, and so we're glad to be home for Christmas, and uh, it's such a gift to get to preach today. So um, we'll start, start right away, as you might expect. Uh, we're going to begin with a poem written by J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, who himself was a professor at Oxford and wrote the greatest selling fiction book of all time, The Lord of the Rings. And this poem, uh, which is also printed in your bulletin, uh, comes from that book. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken, a light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. Now, if you know anything about the the book, The Lord of the Rings, some of this might tie together fairly well for you, but but even if you don't, there's there's a lot right here. The, The first line of this poem is actually a variant of another proverb, Um, All that glitters is not gold. So all that glitters is not gold means just because it's shiny doesn't mean it's of real value. Alternatively, all that is gold does not glitter means that sometimes things have immeasurable value, but they might not appear so on the outside. The second line speaks of the idea that just because someone seems to be wandering or the establishment doesn't have that person figured out, it does not mean they are lost and it does not mean they are not on a mission. Lines three and four, the old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. These speak or they represent um, the endurance of royal lineage despite circumstances. And then, of course, lines five and six represent the renewal of that royal lineage, something coming out of ashes. You could even say a spark in dark times is what these lines represent. And then the last line, the crownless again shall be king. Of course, the character in the book being spoken of is is a guy named Aragorn, who at the beginning of the book is not really known to be king, but by the end of the book is crowned king. What's interesting about this poem is essentially it is a prophecy, and it comes true in the book. Why? Because Tolkien wrote the poem, and he wrote the novel. He could write the story in such a way to give it the ending that he chose, and at the end of this book, the crownless becomes king. Now, we are going to also read a prophecy today that is not fiction, and is Far older than the Lord of the Rings. It's 2,000 years old, 
It comes from the book of Luke, uh, and it's given to us by someone named Zechariah. So if you will, please turn to Luke chapter 1, and we're going to take a look starting at verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. This is where he starts talking about his own son, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Today we ask and hopefully will somewhat answer the question, what on earth does a 2,000-year-old prophecy have anything to do with us today at the end of the year 2018? Before we get into that, we just have to take a moment to acknowledge two sides of the context of Luke chapter 1. First is is sort of the personal narratives that we see in Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel visits Mary and tells her that she's going to become pregnant with a very, very special child. Michael talked earlier of the virgin birth. We also have these characters, they're not characters, they're people. They lived. We have these people, Elizabeth and Zechariah. We're told that they are righteous people. We're told that they're old. We're told that they don't have a child and never have had one. Uh, But we're told that there's a day that Zechariah, who is a priest, is in the sanctuary of the temple, and he also encounters an angel of the Lord. And this angel tells him a few interesting things. This angel says, you and your wife will have a child. Your wife will become pregnant. And Zechariah is sort of excited and blown away and also a little bit nervous by this news. And he says, you know, how can I know that this is going to happen? And the angel says, well, you should also know that you can't talk of this until he's actually born. You're going to have to be silent. Um, And so He walks out of the sanctuary of the temple with this incredible news that he's been given from an angel of the Lord that he's going to have a son, um, and yet he can't tell a soul. And so then we get to this point in the story that his son, John, is born. Um, His mother says he should be called John, and everybody thinks he should be named after his father, Zachariah, and everybody turns to the dad who hasn't been talking for months, and he says he should be called John. And then right after that moment is where we pick up this prophecy. It's a very interesting situation in the story of the lives of Elizabeth, Zechariah, and John, who we know is John the Baptist, who is their son. At the same time, there is a bigger picture at play. 
In, in this time, the Jews, the hearers of this prophecy, were living under the authority of Rome. Very specifically, they were living, living under um, a tyrant. He's known in history as Herod the Great. And he's known as Herod the Great because he was a great builder, not because he was a great guy. He was a horrible, tyrannical ruler. Uh, And he himself was under the thumb of Rome, trying to control and subjugate a people. And so the times were dark. It was not a peachy and positive situation to live in this era, in this place, in this time. The world was was in disarray. Even though there was an empire that seemed to have control, the empire of Rome, the world was very much dark. And so there's a people, Zechariah and Elizabeth are part of this people, the Jews, that had this special purpose on the history uh, of of this earth, to, to be the people through whom salvation would come. A Messiah would come through them, and yet they've been slaves, they've been conquered, they've been exiled, and now they live in occupied territory from a foreign army. They're in this weird place. It could not have been super positive. But, but we have this collision, right? There's a moment of joy. There's actually two amazing things that have happened for Zechariah. One, he and his wife have welcomed their one and only child. Two, he's got his speech back. So there are these joyful occurrences in the midst of a season of sorrow. It was not easy. Does that sound familiar to us today? If you are awake in, in the world today, December 23rd, 2018, and you look around, you can easily see that the world is not as it should be. Something is off. Something is missing. And yet it's Christmas. We're happy. There's a lot of joy. You might have had great things happen in your life this year or this week or this morning. But at the same time, there is something amiss in this world. There is brokenness. Uh, in, in England right now, people are fretting over Brexit. There's this great unknown. People are so worried and so afraid and so frustrated. I don't know if it's been really smooth sailing here in America uh, the last few months, but, uh, um, but maybe that's possible here too. But the point is this. Um, in, a, in a broken world then, and in a broken world now, Prophecies like this actually help us navigate this momentary life that we have on earth. And specifically today, we're going to look at how this prophecy shows us three things. It first shows us the reality of our true enemy, that that which makes this world broken. It will show us the magnificence of our God. And finally, it will clue us into the incomparable beauty of divine redemption. Okay, let's start with the the enemies. Verse 71 says that God will save us from our enemies. Verse 74 says that we will be delivered from the hand of our enemies. The question is, is who are the enemies? It might be easy to think that the Jews in that day thought that the enemy was Rome or the enemy was Herod or the enemy was, was non-faithful, non-religious Jews or Gentiles or pick, pick anyone, right? The, the worldview of Rome had decadence and a pantheon of multiple gods. The worldview of ancient Israel had Yahweh and a temple and faithfulness to the one true God. 
So their worlds could not have been farther apart. Was Rome and all that it stood for the enemy? You, we could think that, but, but I actually think it's not. Verses 72 through 75 clue us in to what the true enemies are. Verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So the first two verses talk about this holy covenant and an oath that God swore to Abraham. What is he referring to? He's referring to Genesis chapter 22 when God speaking to Abraham said this. He says, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Zechariah is referring back to an oath that God made to Abraham a long time ago. What's the problem? Rome didn't exist in the the time of Abraham. Rome was not even a twinkle in Rome's dad's eye in the time of Abraham. Okay, so, so how can we view this as the current political leadership of the day being the enemy that we're, we're talking about here? Is it, is it people or is it something else? Now we acknowledge that it, other places in scripture, our enemies are described as, as people. Jesus himself, later in the book of Luke, will tell us to love our enemies. He is very specifically saying, extend love to those who are a problem for you. So he, he, he does say enemies can be people. However, Rome wasn't around when enemies were described back in the time of Abraham. Who are the enemies? The, the point in the last two verses, or the second two verses, uh, 74 and 75, that once we're delivered from those enemies, we will be able to serve without fear, in holiness and in righteousness for all of our days. That's interesting, right? If I become free from my enemies and then I'm able to be fearless, I'm able to uh, exemplify holiness and righteousness, what does that say about the nature of my enemies? This says that my enemies aren't necessarily somebody standing in front of me, but my enemies have something to do with the person I see in the mirror. Think about that. If our enemies are defeated and we are different, that says something about these enemies. They are timeless. They were around then, they're around now. What am I talking about? Can I get to the point? I'm talking about Satan. I'm talking about death. I'm talking about sin. These are the enemies that, that have been, and according to this prophecy, will be defeated. And what's so remarkable about these enemies is that they are pervasive. And and sin specifically is pretty, pretty important to defeat. Why is that? Because when you've defeated sin, death is no longer a threat. Death is a passage. It's one state to another. And except in rare circumstances, you don't come back from it. Okay? So if sin has been dealt with, then death is not a threat to you. If sin has been dealt with, Satan 
as powerful as he is, does not have any power over you. He is limited to use the temptation of sin to try to accomplish his purposes. What's the point? The point is that our enemies are not people. Our enemies are rooted within each and every one of us at birth. And that's a huge problem. Look, we want to frame up whatever the problem is in the world is from the outside of ourselves. It's that other person. It's that other country. It's that other group of people. The enemy is, is another you know, entity of, of fellow humans. And the reality is, is we harbor the enemy the moment we are born. And what is so amazing about our God is that he deals with that enemy when we cannot. And so we know our enemies, but how magnificent is it that our God can deal with those enemies, not on our shoulders, but despite our incompetence? So the magnificence of our God is connected to this idea of the defeat of our enemies. But, but Zechariah speaks of it in a, in a number of ways. Verse 68 God visits and redeems his people. That means that God does not leave his people alone, nor does he leave them unknown. He visits and redeems his people. Verse 69, he raises up a horn of salvation. A horn is a symbol of power and strength. This says that God has all that he needs, all the power that is required to do all that he wills. What does that God will? He wills to show mercy, verse 72. What is that mercy like? It is tender mercy, described in verse 78. So all throughout this prophecy, Zechariah is speaking about the greatness of God and all that God does. But what's most interesting is is that he says that, but what does he not say? What has just happened in his life? He has his firstborn son now welcomed into his family, and he was mute for months, and now he can speak. Nowhere in this prophecy does it say, thank you, Lord, for giving my speech back. Thank you, Lord, for giving me my son. This prophecy is 12 verses long. And yet, Zechariah's son, John, who has just been born after a very, very long wait, is really only kind of mentioned in two of the verses. This is really interesting. One commentator describes it really well. Uh, He writes, it is interesting to observe how the natural feelings and partialities of the Father are here merged in the higher emotions of inspiration and prophecy. With his own infant son before him, his only son, the child of his old age, and on an occasion, the most exciting to a father's feelings, the burden of his prophecy is the great blessings which are to come upon the world through the instrumentality of another child yet to be born. It is only in conclusion that he turns to his own son and then to assign him the comparatively humble part of going before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Look, the argument is not that Zechariah is not grateful for the redemption that God has brought into his life. The argument is that Zechariah is so fixated on the character and goodness of God that all else falls away. He is so enamored at what God is going to do in the big picture, in the larger story, that he cannot help but talk about what God will do. He is speaking about the redemption that Jesus 
affords. Now, there's, a, there's an application here for us, right? So Zechariah has these monumental things happen in his life, but he's mostly talking about the Lord. One way we could, we could describe it is that he can't help but talk about God. One way to say it, uh, someone told me the other day, they, they were talking about when people grow up and maybe they, they were in the faith as a young person and then their lives begin to go in whatever direction they go. He said, you know, it's sad to me, people I know who more and more Jesus is on their lips, less and less. What's the point? Zachariah has Jesus on his lips. He's, he's spending so much time talking about the redemption that God offers. He's basically amazed by it. What's the implication for you and for me if we can be talking about the goodness of God and about the life of Christ and about the message and the kingdom of Christ over and over and over again? Look, we're going to be a lot more pleasant to be around. <laughs> uh, we will not be offended by others, and we probably we may offend other people, but we are not going to be pent up on our own self. The, the prideful fixation that we all have on ourselves is something that limits us and limits the joy that we can experience and that we can put into the world. And so the question we have is, how often is Jesus on our lips? How much is God spoken of uh, with, with our voices? Not just, hey, how do we live our lives? Do people think we're good people? But do we talk about what God has done? I think it's an interesting question for us. And so Zechariah clearly can't stop talking about God. And, and, and we, we think that's a good thing, but it's a challenge, right? We are so easily distracted by all that is in front of us in the next hour, in the next day, in the next week. We're distracted by things that are hard and things that are good. So how do we have Jesus on our lips? How do we speak more of what God has done? Perhaps focusing on the incredible beauty of divine redemption and being amazed ourselves will get us there. The last couple verses of this prophecy might help us in that. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Do we understand how beautiful of a picture this is? The, the metaphor being used of a sunrise, right? So the people here that are going to experience this sunrise are not only sitting in darkness, but all around them is the shadow of death. That is not a good place to be, and it's an easy place to be in fear. And yet this beautiful picture of a sun coming up slowly on the horizon, light increasing, increasing, increasing. And what is the result of a sun, sunrise? It's not light in darkness, it's the elimination of darkness. When the sun is shining high, you forgot that there ever was a sunrise, because there is no darkness. It's a, it's a really beautiful metaphor. Um, Tolkien in Lord of the Rings actually also uses it pretty well. So um, if you've read the books or you've seen the movies, there's a, there's a point in the story in the second book, The Two Towers, where the sunrise kind of plays a really important role. And I'm going to simplify it. And I apologize for nerding out this morning. So you're just going to have to kind of 
whatever, go with it. Uh, But I'm going to simplify it. The good guys are holed up in a fort at the base of a valley called Helm's Deep. And they are surrounded by the bad guys. And they've been fighting all night. And the bad guys outnumber them incredibly. And the bad guys come over the wall. And they can tell that they are near the end. It is almost doom for them. And so what do the leaders of the good guys do? They say, you know what? Maybe we're going to go, but we're going to go with a smile on our face and the sword in our hand. And so the leaders get on their horses and they get their swords and they ride out of the fort and they ride, ride straight into battle. And it's as if they could be going to their certain death. But the sun is rising. And if you've seen the movie, this, this, this episode is painted so beautifully in the movie. They, they're riding on their horses into this sea of, of enemies. And yet they look to the east and at the top of the hill is Gandalf on his horse Shadowfax following, uh, leading a group of otherwise unknown riders. Gandalf is leading the help. He is leading the rescue. And, and what's so interesting, they charge down the hill and behind them is the rising sun. And the, the literal light of the sun blinds the eyes of the enemies. And this incredibly dark time took a turn with the sunrise. They make it out okay. It's, it's going to be good. But hopefully you get the, get the idea, you get the premise. It was really bad. It was really dark. And then the sunrise came and there was a turn of events. So this, this was actually a, a thing that Tolkien wrote about. This, this turn of events in a story, he called it a catastrophe. So he took the word catastrophe and he put a Greek prefix on the front of it. E-U, catastrophe, meaning a good catastrophe. So it was not looking good. They were near sudden death at Helm's Deep. And then there was a catastrophe. The sunrise came. The help arrived right? Later at the very end of the book, uh, Sam and Frodo, they destroy the ring. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've got the holidays, watch the movies. <laughs> they, they destroy the ring, which is sort of the whole goal of the whole epic novel, but then the mountain starts to blow up and they're in danger. It looks like even though they accomplished their mission, they're in sudden doom, but there's a catastrophe. The eagles show up and they fly them to safety. And what is so interesting about this This idea that Tolkien put into his writing is that he actually believes, and he's written so much so, that it actually reflects reality. So what on earth would Tolkien, who himself was a follower of Jesus, what did he say about eucatastrophe in real life? He said that the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. He described a eucatastrophe as a sudden, joyous turn. Do we believe that the birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history? I hope we do. We just sang about it. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks what? A new and glorious morn. But what's interesting is Tolkien writes even more. He says, when he talks about this concept of eucatastrophe, if 
the birth of Jesus is the sudden joyous turn in human history. He says the resurrection is the sudden joyous turn of the story of the incarnation. There is eucatastrophe on eucatastrophe in the way that God has written the story. It looks really bad right until the Lord shows up and makes things right and makes things as they should be. Eucatastrophe is described as a sudden, miraculous grace. It's incredible, and it's beautiful. And all the good stories in the world, whether it's Tolkien or wherever else, they're pointing to the one true, good, best, ultimate story. And friends, we should be amazed by that. So we're left with the question, if we know what our true enemy is, that it's not people, but it's Satan, it's death, it's sin, and that there is an amazing, all-powerful God who can deal with our enemies, who is magnificent. Um, and, the, and the way about, the way that he went about doing that was actually a beautiful story. If we know all of these things from this 2,000-year-old prophecy, the question is, so what? What's the point? To conclude, I'm going to give you three thoughts. First of all, if all of this is true, we should be amazed. We should be in awe. We should experience wonder at the eucatastrophe of Christmas. Friends, we do not hope in some ambiguous principle. We hope in a person who showed up and there was a thrill of hope. So if that's the case, we should seek to be amazed. The other thing I think is interesting is that we should be really humble people. If we really do acknowledge that there is something not right in the world, there is a brokenness that we can't fully put our hands on, or maybe we, we clearly understand the brokenness of the world. Either way, there are a lot of people who are navigating that brokenness without a hope in Jesus. So when we encounter the lost, we should be really humble because we have it way better than they do. We're navigating darkness with hope. They don't have hope yet. And so I think that in the context of, of all that we know, we should be really humble to those that don't yet have a hope because it, it's impossibly hard to figure out how to navigate this life um, if there isn't something after this life. Imagine the cruelty of old age if death is the end of the story. We have a hope and so we should be really humble about that. We should carry that with us. And the third thing that we should do is we should be really talkative. We should talk about the hope that we have, just like Zechariah. When we are amazed, when we humbly understand all that we have been giving, all that we have been given, we cannot but talk about all that we know. Jesus should be on our lips. Friends, what happens... When you and I first learned or when people first learn that a light has sprung from the shadows, a weary world rejoices. And that is a really good thing. Let's pray. Father, we come before you uh, so grateful that even in words that were written so long ago, when you inspired Zechariah to speak, um, have absolute pertinence to us today. 
Uh, we, we do ask sincerely, Father, that you would help us be amazed at the miracle of Christmas, at the miracle of redemption that you provide. We ask that even though Christmas is something that we see every year, that it's a season and a rhythm that we feel familiar in, we ask that even today, even tomorrow, even Tuesday, and into the next year, that you would help us be in awe of who you are and what you've done. We ask that we would humbly carry this gift of salvation into the world and that we would be kind and we would be gentle, but that we would freely talk to people, that your son's name would be on our lips and that when we talk of the hope that he affords, that others might experience a thrill of hope. Lord, and we ask that this weary world would rejoice because they know Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.